Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Shop Talk, Mike and I talk about behavior change and building good habits. As health professionals, our biggest role in helping people restore optimal health is helping them understand what bad habits to break, which are contributing to their issues, and how to create sustainable, healthy habits to achieve long-term improvements. We talk about some behavioral theories from psychology, we compare short-term and long-term rewards and consequences of certain behaviors, and we review the fact that it's more about creating good systems than simply creating good goals. The process of behavior change always starts with awareness. You need to be aware of your habits before you can actually change them, so hopefully this episode gives you some practical guidance and starting to make small changes in your daily life that can accumulate into big positive changes in your health long-term. This episode is brought to you by the Roasters Pack. Our team at TFCHQ are big fans of coffee, and this Canadian company provides a unique subscription service that delivers you three great coffees to your door each month and gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that they come from. You can check out theroasterspack.com and use the code FOOT at checkout for 7 bucks off your first month of any subscription. Subscriptions start at $27 a month, and that's all in, including shipping and taxes. So it works out to about... It works out to less than a dollar per cup, uh, which gives some great value. This episode is also sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases, which we use to transport gear for our seminars and workshops. They make super high quality cases that keep your electronics safe during travel. And you can check out their cases at nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors. Let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC Audio Project. It's a collective effort. Help people understand their bodies, starting at the feet are the gateway for people to see that there's an issue. You know, a foot conversation is always a whole body conversation. Hey folks, Nick and Mike here, back for another episode of Shop Talk. Today's episode, we're going to talk about behavior change and building habits. And this is a topic that's really at the core of what every health professional is trying to do. You know, we don't fix people, we help people fix themselves. And the primary driver for that is changing their lifestyle. Um... And, and changing a lifestyle is just a kind of a fancy way of saying changing their behavior by identifying habits and working to change them and understanding the things that um, play into those habits. So we're going to go through, we'll start with just kind of, why don't we start with talking about theories of, of uh, behavior from psychology, mm-hmm. uh, like we talked about, and then we can kind of fire through how that relates and trickles back into how we try and help people, right? How people can help themselves by just being self-aware. Because I think that's, you know, in order to change your behavior, like we mentioned before, the first step is identifying it. So let's talk about schools of, uh, you know, we both have an undergrad in psychology. And I think the, I think that was really valuable actually as a health professional because it teaches you about what drives behavior. No, exactly. Um, And health is, your current state of health is behavior. is based on the behaviors you're currently doing. Um, So if you want to talk about improving health, that means changing behavior. Mm-hmm. So you, current health equals your current behavior. Changing health equals changing behavior. Yeah. Um, I think that's the premise from what we should go on. Um, so I think we should talk about maybe behaviorism, and it's a school of thought in psychology. Um, it became popularized in the early to mid-1900s, really popular, but mm-hmm. it started out of this uh, law of effect by Ed- Edward Thorndike. Basically, behaviors followed by a satisfying consequences tend to be repeated, and those that produce unpleasant consequences tend to be not repeated. So it's just like basic conditioning. If you do something and it feels good, you want to do more. If you mm-hmm. do something that feels bad, that's kind of the feedback you use to determine whether you continue that behavior or whether you end it. Exactly. So I think that now there's some real positives to thinking this way, and then there's also some complexities and some areas where this falls short. Mm-hmm. I think the positives are it almost treats us like the animals that we are mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, and there's many different studies on this. We'll get into operant versus classical conditioning, but um, there is very real benefit to that. And be, because I think if you go back to it and treat and recognize that you are an animal and you have these urges and these reward systems um, and these punishment systems in place, it helps you understand from a more cognitive level what's going on. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can apply some other logic on top of that that can help you make the decisions. But yeah, we have these weird notions where we think of ourselves as like these crazy, superior, um, massively intelligent, you know, entities. 
and we don't think of ourselves as animals, but we're animals, mm-hmm. right? Like we're, we are an animal that lives in the environment and we have this kind of superiority complex where we don't think of ourselves as that. But I think visualizing yourself as an animal allows you to just take a step back and analyze your behavior from a more objective standpoint, right? Exactly. It's like, well, I know that eating, um, you know, a pack of brownies is not going to be good for me. So why do I do it? Why, what is the reinforcement for that behavior? Why do I seem to always end up doing that? Um, or why do I always buy crap at the grocery store that I know isn't good for me? You know, like just identifying those behaviors as from like an exterior standpoint mm-hmm. is the start of being able to change those behaviors. No, exactly. And so like at the base of all that is uh, classical conditioning. And that's almost like pure animalistic. It's like conditioned stimulus paired with unconditioned stimulus. And it's like classically it's Pavlov, Pavlovian learning. So it's like the classic experiment is uh, Pavlov would ring a bell every time he'd show a dog meat. Mm-hmm. And eventually he'd actually take the meat away and just ring the bell. And he'd see this salivation response in the dog just from ringing the bell. So the dogs were conditioned to start to salivate because they thought food was going to be there in mm-hmm. the response to something completely uh, extraneous, which was like the, the ring of a bell. And I think that even something like that plays a part in our lives too, in mm-hmm. terms of like all this subconscious programming in the form of advertisements, um, things you hear on the radio, things you see on TV. And it's like, it, that sparks that like hunger or sure. or something, whatever, sure. the, whatever it is in you. I know um, when I walk through an airport and I smell donuts, I... I don't always buy a donut, but I want a donut when I smell one. So yeah. you're, like we're conditioned, we're conditioned by media, by advertisers. Um, we're conditioned by food. Food is a big one. Like every time, even smelling coffee makes you want a coffee. Like we're, whether or not you realize it, whether or not you act on that, you know, um, associated kind of element, um, you're, you're, we don't realize how conditioned we are oh, exactly. in terms of our habits. You know, I, when I walk into a grocery store, before I even realized what I was doing, I would always walk in the same pathway. And it was like this response that I was almost on autopilot um, when I walked in there until I was, you know, until I actually made an effort to take a different route. I was like, I was just doing what I did every time without even thinking of it. That's all subconscious. Exactly. We're definitely conditioned. And, you know, and like I said, looking at yourself as kind of this animal that's been trained by our own behaviors, by what's around us, allows you to just take a look and be like, hmm, okay, at least I can identify them. Now I can kind of, and now I can look at the ones that I know I need to change and I can start to try and, you know, implement changes that essentially kind of hack those automatic pathways that I'm already going down. Exactly. So if we look into and step forward into operant conditioning, that's almost, it was made popular by a few people, including B.F. Skinner um, in kind of the the early to mid uh, 1900s. But that's basically, it's all based on a set of stimuli that provide meaningful consequences to the animal. Mm -hmm. So the consequences is is the big one. And the consequences can be positive or negative. So this is all based on reinforcement versus punishment. So basically a behavior is... Um, reinforced when the stimulus increases the probability of you performing it. So um, punishment is basically the stimulus decreases the probability of you performing the behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's based on these reinforcers or punishers. Um, and we see this a lot in terms of, in terms of health as well. Um, I think we should delve deep into this because it's an interesting concept in terms of like, short-term versus long-term reinforcers and then yeah. short-term versus long-term punisher uh, punishments mm-hmm. uh, for our behaviors. And I think it's, it's very interesting because there's this effect called the immediacy effect um, as it relates to operant conditioning. And that states that immediate consequences, whether they're positive or negative, are much more effective than delayed uh, consequences. Yeah, and, and I think sometimes people just don't draw the the connection right like they don't if something is has a delayed consequence or a delayed reward they don't see the connection between the behavior and then the result especially if it's long term right it's very easy to see um you know you gave the analogy of you eat a full cake that is a lot of fun right that that tastes really really good Mm -hmm. but what they don't associate with it is the next day you might feel like a bag of shit exactly and they don't you know i think people have or even like sitting like if you sit um, it, it feels good to sit, right? To relax. It's easy. It's it's a comfortable thing to do uh, for a lot of people. But after five years of sitting every day, every day of the week um, for 10 hours, you start to get this delayed effect where your hips don't move anymore. 
but the short-term benefit or the short-term good feeling of relaxing from gravity in a chair, in this comfy chair, overrides the fact, and then people don't make the connection. They don't make the connection that, oh, my knees, my back, and my hips hurt. They don't connect that with the fact that they're sitting every day. Yeah, exactly. So it's like making that connection obvious is almost like, a, the, I think that's the biggest role we have to play as health professionals is make sure people can see these delayed consequences so that they can at least identify that the behavior they do every day is what they need to change. Yeah, and it can be like, like you say, it can be very long term in terms of like your health way down the road, mm -hmm. uh, but it can also be like shorter term. So it's just so easy for the animal within us to go by the immediacy effect in terms of like going by the initial consequences that happened. Mm -hmm. So let's say you did something and it gave you an, an initial immediate punishment, you would be likely not to do that again. Mm -hmm. Um so and that go it goes both ways and that's where it becomes interesting. So we were talking about cold exposure. So the punishment of cold exposure is an immediate very immediate slap in the face of cold yeah. um in terms of like oh my god this is not comfortable at all. That's the consequence. But what you don't see is the long-term um, reinforcement of that or the reward of that. That uh, So the consequences in the long-term are uh, better immune system, right? They're sharpening your mind, feeling more in control sharpening of your, your mind. mind. Um, being better, to, better at dealing with cold in the future. Yeah. That's what people don't get. I always tell people, it's like, <laughs> if you don't like the cold, then you should train, to, to, uh, you should train in the cold. Right. Yeah. If like most people, so if they don't like the, yeah, people, <laughs> cold is one of those things where people immediately go into two camps. They're one camp is like, okay, I'm going to try it. And then they kind of like it and they almost get it. Like when Jeff was here from, from Miami, he, he got addicted to it. He's like, can we go for another swim in the river? And I was like, okay, you, this guy's into this shit now. Mm -hmm. Um, but then you have the other camp people that are like, why would you do that? And you know, I think some of those people, even when you explain the benefits of it and why you do it, um, the people that are most scared of it are the people that need it the most because they're the people with the least control over their mind. They're the people that have the biggest intolerances to cold and always complain and whine about being cold. It's like, perfect. If you complain or you find you're cold a lot, why don't you train your body to be more robust in dealing with the cold, like you said, um, and, and that short-term punishment can give you the long-term benefit of not always being cold. Exactly. It's the short-term punishment trumps, basi basically for a lot of people, the short-term punishment trumps the long-term reinforcement yeah. if we're talking about pure operant conditioning. Um, but the long-term reinforcement is oftentimes more powerful. Mm -hmm. So then once you notice the effects of it, like, like Jeff was immediately addicted to it, but somebody who starts with cold showers and they start to do this over time, they start to feel the differences in terms of how they feel. Yeah. And the feeling thing over time is that's the long-term reinforcement is like, Oh, I get why I'm doing this in the, in the short, I'm get why I'm doing that short-term punishment. And then if we flip it back to the short-term reward, that's what really gets people to. Yeah, so people, people, people don't hard. like short-term punishments because it's all that short-term thinking, right? Um, and that's kind of the, the bigger idea in all of this is we need to distinguish between short-term, long-term, mm -hmm. um, because often what's good in the short-term um, is not, doesn't feel good, but what's what's feels good in the short-term is not good in the long-term. Yeah, right? it's so, almost like this inverse. Yeah, so what's... What's uncomfortable in the short term can give long-term benefit. What's mm -hmm. comfortable in the short term can give long-term harm. And like exactly. we talked about before, like with the cold exposure, if you don't think, if you don't have the body awareness or, or think into the long-term to see, to try and like be aware of those long-term effects where you're not, uh, you're more resilient to cold. Uh, you have a, you have, you feel a better sense of control over your mind. Like you're improving your mental health by going in cold water. People oh, for sure. crock it up as, as something that's woo woo, but it's like, this is true. If they don't identify the long-term benefit, then they don't see the point of do, going through the short-term discomfort. But when they see that and realize it, and, and part of it is just like priming people to say, if you go in cold water, these are the things that can result in long-term. So they need to know. So what you're saying is know. they need to know what the long-term reinforcers yeah. will be of that, and that's key. Yeah. So that's kind of like... That's how it gets reinforced, right? There's no... It, yeah. <laughs> it would get de-enforced if people didn't see that because it's just short-term shittiness. It's like working out. If you do a really, really hard workout and exert on yourself a form of struggle that is super sucky in the short term. Sometimes if you know how good you're going to feel afterwards, that knowledge of how good you're going to feel, you know, long term and long term might just be later that day overrides the short term discomfort. And actually, you learn to associate long term benefit with short term discomfort. Yes. So you, you almost powerful. you need to learn 
I think cognitively you need to know that there will be light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. when you choose to do something that might be hard. So either neutral or even like punishing in the, in the short term. So a lot of these healthy behaviors are, are hard to do because they don't give us these immediate rewards. Right. Yeah. But it, so if you, you need it, obvious. the first step is cognitively, cognitively knowing that the benefits at the end of the tunnel are there mm-hmm. and just trusting the process. But then, like you say, to really deeply ingrain it, you need to start feeling the, the positive reinforcers that come yeah. once you start doing the activity. But the key there is you need to start doing the activity in order for the positive reinforcements to come. Cause then it's like, you can't, we always say you can't lie. You can't, you can't deny the good effects of like, you feel better when you sleep eight hours a night. You feel better when you eat well. You just need to experience it long enough for it to be positively reinforced in that longer term. And people need to prove it to themselves. That's another thing. It's like you can tell someone all you want, how good cold is, how, you know, um, how good you'll feel when you eat healthy, when you eat food that we're designed to eat. But until they actually do it and feel it themselves and prove it to themselves, you can't sell someone on it. And no. so like our job is just to try and have people be open-minded to trying things, to seeing, you know, try things that aren't going to do you long-term harm. Like you're not going to hurt yourself or kill yourself by doing this, but be open-minded to the fact that you're probably going to feel benefits after the fact and the benefits far outweigh the short-term um, discomfort that you're going to experience. And that's part of it, right? It's like you're earning that long-term benefit by going through something that, not a lot of people want to go through. And the problem is we don't have to go through it anymore. We don't have to, you know, engineering struggle or forcing your, putting yourself into struggle in a controlled environment is something we no longer have to do. And it's too easy not to. And I think that's the, that's this whole short-term benefit for long-term consequence thing. We're fixated. It's too easy to have these short-term consequences or short-term benefits, right? You can go into a grocery store and destroy 50 Snickers bars. It's too easy. But that the same can be said about that is you need to realize the, the consequences of that in the long term. Yeah. Cause it's like the flip of that coin again. So if it's you, like you go out for a big night of drinking might, might be rewarding in that short term or you eat, you know, a cake before bed. <laughs> but so that short term, um, reinforcement is going to get trumped by that long term punishment. You, your job is to realize the punishment and connect the dots. Make the connection. So, yes. so it's like, oh my, oh, I see why I'm, and I think that's a good, you know, time to, to get into this ABC model because that relates really well to that. It's, it's being, it's, it's the awareness that will really get you to the next level of, of changing the behavior. Mm -hmm. So what the ABC model is, it's kind of an offshoot of this operant conditioning, but it's, uh, it stands for antecedent behavior consequence, ABC. So antecedent is just basically the environment or the preceding events, uh, before a behavior of interest. So it's like a cue. It's like a cue, a trigger. It's, mm-hmm. they call it the setting, the event setting. So it's like, what is, what is the environment like? What's happening before this behavior? Mm-hmm. Now, the behavior is the behavior of interest. That's the behavior that you're kind of honing in on and you're, and you, you want to analyze why that's happening and, and you want to change that behavior of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the consequences, what is the outcome of that behavior? What happens after the behavior? So in order for you to change that behavior using this ABC model, the first is you have to hone in on that behavior of interest. And like we say, that's the that's the awareness piece. It's like you actually need to know what behavior you want to change yeah. in order for you to change it. So and we're once- creatures of habit and a habit is, you know, it's a routine practice that's performed regularly and basically becomes an automatic response to a specific situation. So mm-hmm. You know, the, a big key word there is automatic. If it's automatic, you don't even know it's happening. It's just happening. For you're, sure. You're, you're running this program, the software program that you have very little conscious input on until you really take a keen interest to look and, and say, okay, I want to identify. I need to be aware of the habits I'm doing because right, the definition of a habit is it's, you're not really aware of it. So step one is becoming aware. And, and that beca- that's a thing where you look at the behavior, like you said. Behavior of interest. Once you identify the behavior of interest, you can then work to identify the antecedent. Right? You can yes. work to identify the cue that triggered that behavior. But step one is identify the behavior. That's that middle step, the B. Yeah. And like you say, so, so then let's just go through an example. Like a behavior happens, and we'll talk about it more conceptually, but maybe if you want to think of an, an actual concrete example, behavior that you want to change. Next time it happens write down what happened leading up to the behavior or think about it or even write it down 
um, and what happened right after it. But so it, let's what, talk about it in the context of food. This is a very simple one yeah. that I think I I find myself exposed to all the time, and I'm sure a lot of people do. Let's say you eat five cookies. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that's like be- boom. That's the behavior of interest. And and you know what we were talking about before. You almost have to go to the C first, right? Because the consequence, if it's good, you want to identify that behavior and reinforce it. If it's a bad consequence health-wise, you want to identify the behavior and de-enforce de- it, right? So you almost have to look at the consequence to f- to even start the, the conversation within your mind of, is this even a behavior worth targeting? If it's healthy, yes, it's worth targeting because I want to reinforce it. If it's unhealthy long-term, then I also want to identify it to see how I can stop that behavior. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, cook- in the context of cookies, okay, I just crushed five cookies. I know that that's going to have a negative consequence. My blood sugars are going to spike. I'm, you know, it felt good eating them because they taste really good. But so the short term consequence was good. Yeah. You felt good right after. Yeah. So it's almost like, what did that give me in terms of the consequence? Yeah. Why did I do it? What am I, what made me want to do that? Yeah. So what, what, again, back to that short term, long term. So in the short term, the consequence was a positive consequence. Yeah. Long term, it's a negative consequence. Mm Mm-hmm. But then it's like, why did you, you know, what's the antecedent? So exactly. what would it be for so you? So the antecedent might be, there's a box of cookies sitting in plain sight on the kitchen counter. It might be as simple as that. So I just crushed it. Yeah, it might be as simple as, um, you know, your, whatever it is, you, you're driving by, you drive by the, like a fast food restaurant on the way home. Yep. You smell something. There might be something very simple when it comes to food. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it might be like stress related, like, yeah. oh, I see what's happening. Every time I get stressed, then I do, I, I, you know, I go drinking or I do, or I, I binge eat or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But always before that, oh, these conditions are always present. It's always a situation where I'm doing too much. I'm, I haven't slept enough. And then mm-hmm. I just explode. And then what are the consequences of that? Well, I feel good in the short term, but then I don't feel good in the long term. And I want to change that behavior. And with the cookie thing, it's like, okay, an easy way to take away the antecedent is okay eating five cookies is not good for me i know it's feels good in the short term which is why i do it but it's bad in the long term so if i want to eliminate that behavior number one don't have the cookies in plain sight so you reduce the visual cue that stimulated you to say wow cookies taste good last time i ate them they tasted really good i want to eat a bunch of them so if you get them out of sight even better don't even buy the cookies at the grocery store so you have to backtrack that behavior and go through okay this is the automatic path i take in the grocery store i always buy these cookies because they're there and i and it triggers when i look at those cookies or or when i go through that section of the grocery store it reminds me of how good cookies taste so even rewinding even more don't even buy the cookies because you know what you so just say you change it exactly right? and you you took out you know james clear his book atomic habits which by the way if you want to analyze your own habits and and understand your habits that's one of the best books uh i think i've read because a lot of things revolve around habits you want to be a really good athlete you got to develop habits for your training right you have to get develop a system that allows you to reach your your goals and um you know his definition of atomic has kind of two parts one was an extremely small amount of a thing right the atom the smallest unit and then two was the source of immense energy and power, like an atomic bomb. So, and I think it's a really, really cool title because the smallest things can create massive impacts. Mm-hmm. And in order to get that ball rolling and making those small changes, you got to identify what things are worth changing, right? So I think that like the first, the ABC is like the identification. And then what you're kind of getting into now is like, well, how do you actually change it? Because it's yeah. one thing to identify it. The next thing is like, like you say, small, actionable steps to change in it. Mm-hmm. And it might be very, very small. The smaller those, the better, I think, mm-hmm. to get started until you start to develop this pattern, this new behavior. Then it's, you know, if, if you're like, okay, my hips are stiff, I got to mobilize my hips. Why don't you start with 30 seconds a day? And once you've done, if you're actually consistent and for seven days in a row, for 30 seconds per day, you work on your hip mobility with like 90, 90 or doing squats, whatever you want it to be. After seven days, number one, if you did it every day for 30 seconds, that gives you this kind of very cool sense of control over your life where you're like, I wanted to do something. I did it. I have control over my daily habits. I was able to implement that with, I had the willpower and the wherewithal to make sure I remembered. It's not that hard to go from 30 seconds to a minute if you already did it every day. But and if then, you're like, I want to do 30 minutes of hip mobility every day, if you're going from nothing to 30 minutes a day, I don't know if that's realistic. So it's better to start small. It is much better to start small. And and you're actually trying to create opposing habits when you do that. And the opposing habits are what really kind of take hold of themselves. Because basically, the, like you say, habits are 
program behaviors. Um, by definition, these program behaviors have gone into your subconscious mm-hmm. so that you don't have to consciously think about them. If we had to consciously think about every habit that we had, it would be very it would be overwhelming. overwhelming. So yeah. it's it's based on just efficiency and energy conservation from a you know from a, a neural standpoint. So it's like let's build these neural connections underneath the surface, so we just do our thing and we don't have to think about it. But in order to change habits, you almost again the first step is bringing them back up to the consciousness mm-hmm. because all these habits are subconscious. So. You know what is what is subconscious is harder to identify, but but you know it's definitely doable. So I think everything stems back to bring it to consciousness and then pick it apart using different models, whether it's the ABC model, um, just intuitively thinking about it, um, break it apart, and then you can actually start to change these. Um, you can go in and say, okay, I'm going to start to layer down new habits. Mm-hmm. And the new habits start very slowly and very small. But repetition is what the brain decides is important. So if you're repeating something over time, the brain decides it's important and it starts to lay down these new neural connections. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to put that into the subconscious again because it wants that program maintained over time. So the key there is like repeat, repeat, repeat. Whatever small um, thing you're doing, um, that repetition effect is, is really, really key. And that's how those bad habits formed in the first place is through repetitions. If you did just one behavior once and never did it again, you wouldn't have a problem with it. It wouldn't be a habit. It wouldn't be ingrained. The fact that you did it so much before is what turned it into the subconscious program that has a life of its own now and that you almost think that you don't have conscious control of it because you almost don't. It's just running underneath the surface. And I think that's where, you know, as a physical therapist or as any kind of health professional, whether you're a physician, doctor, uh, physical therapist, chiro, massage therapist, whatever it is, your job, your primary job is to help people identify these automatic patterns. Yes. Everything you see in clinic or a lot of what you see in terms of movement dysfunction is based on a pattern of behavior that they've been exhibiting and that has resulted in this pattern of restriction or pattern of movement dysfunction. And so hearing people's story, when you're doing a subjective you know, I, one of our profs in physio school said, if you ask the right questions, people will tell you exactly what's wrong and what caused the problem. And I found that so true. When I first graduated, you do all these objective tests because you think that's what you're supposed to do. You know, get people to do all these movements and special tests. But at the end of the day, just have a conversation about them. You want to get an idea of what someone's behaviors are on a daily basis and then make a basically a priority list of, okay, I think these are the easiest behaviors for us to start working on or start chipping away at. Yeah. And we have to make sure that they identify that behavior. I have to make sure that someone understands that spending 10 hours a day in a chair is the short-term benefit that they're doing every day, the, the habit they're doing every day that's resulting in the long-term consequence of back pain or knee pain. And then just get, number one, get them aware of that. Number two, work with them to as like, you're like a behavior change coach. That's really what you are, mm-hmm. right? Yes, you show them exercises and movements. You can do some manual therapy. A sustainable that's the way, habit. That's the habit. The but, habits are layering these yeah. little uh, implements in that can actually, these are positive habits So, if, and, and tools that you can use um, to, to, to help the process along. Yeah. But the whole thing is, it's the whole thing is behavior change. So that you doing or not doing your exercises or you doing or not doing your mobility work, it's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, but again, it's also an important piece because now you have this other way of, of tackling, you know, tackling the problem that you're, you're trying to deal with. Because it is the rate limiting step. Like, okay, Mike, you are the, let's say hypothetically, you're the best physical therapist in the world. When someone comes in with a problem, you know exactly what to do to troubleshoot their movement and to tell them exactly what the restrictions are right now that they need to work on. What is the limiting step for that person getting better? Um, the limiting step is... Compliance. Compliance. Yeah. Compliance. It's, it, are they, have they bought in to understanding what behaviors are causing the problem? And is it sustain, Is the stuff you gave them to do at home sustainable for them to do long term? Right, Because this isn't about... When people come in with this these kind of broken down movement patterns, you're not trying to create habits for a week or for a month. You're trying to create habits for a lifetime. And in order mm-hmm. to do that, they have to be sustainable. They have to fit into that person's life. They have to um, have a, a big enough understanding of why it's relevant for them to do that. You need to sell them on why they need yeah. to start building good habits. Because no one wants a limiting to... Step. I think that's what differentiates the buy-in effect of when we're treating somebody is like... If they don't know, no, I always say like no one wants to do 
exercises for the purpose of just doing exercises, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to like physiotherapy. No one wants to just be given a sheet of exercises. <laughs> yeah. And it's like <laughs> that your grandma wouldn't even want to do because they're so easy and silly. But the first step is always, I always tell people everything that I, sh that I show you today, everything that I discuss, I want you to know why we're doing it. Yeah. I want you to know the purpose behind it. The reason being is that so you can understand, you know, yourself while you're doing it when you're doing it yourself so that gives you like oh i'm doing this because it's going to help me here here and here and then you know filter that into the grand goal of changing behavior and all of that but if somebody doesn't even know why they're doing something they're not going to want to do it because then it comes back to that like you're just that that willpower only lasts so long and it's like you might do your exercise for a few days now the other part of it is like if you actually give them give them stuff to work on and they start doing it and they start feeling better. Yeah. That's also powerful. But I think it's both ends of the spectrum. They need to know why they're doing something and that just allows them to start it at least and know mm -hmm. why they're starting it and why they're doing it. And then you can let that uh, take hold in terms of like the feeling effect. Yeah. It comes down to that feeling effect. They need to feel that whatever they're working on is starting to work. And then that's going to help ingrain it along with the patterns that they're setting themselves. You almost have to like hack it and find a way to make something like no one thinks that they want to sit on the floor and do hip mobility and uncomfortable active mobility work. But if you give them some sort of outlet where if they're in pain right now and they do that for 10 minutes and it's uncomfortable, but it's not painful and then they feel better for an hour they get a short-term reward, even though the, the the really the goal is long-term, right? You're trying to get this person to create a daily habit of doing some joint hygiene so that their body doesn't break down because their hips actually move. But if you give them some sort of short-term benefit where they feel good immediately when they get up off the floor, that is one of the big powerful drivers for them to continue. And exactly. they just have to do it enough times. And like I think people underestimate the fact that changes that seem small. So um, you know, being able to go from a, an uncomfortable 90-90 position to a comfortable 90-90, that's a small change. But changes that seem small and unimportant compound into these massive changes long term if you're consistent and you keep doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it, it compounds so heavily, it's insane. People come back, you know, two, three, four months later or a year later and they're like, yeah, so I did five minutes of hip mobility every single day. Just like I brushed my teeth, I built a habit. And now I feel so different. I feel like I have a new body. And it's like, yeah, they compound. If you're consistent, consistency is the hardest part. Um, and you have to note those little little wins along the way, like the short-term rewards that you get from that. Because mm -hmm. maybe just doing your your hip mobility work is almost like that punishment effect that we talked about at the start. Mm -hmm. But then maybe right after you get that, re that reward or that reinforcement effect. So it always just comes back to like notice or note that reinforcement. Make note of it. Make a mental note of it. Make even like a, a physical note of it. Like, I felt good after I did that thing. And it almost turns into Pavlov's experiment, right? It's like, okay, you give a dog meat, it drools, you ring a bell at the same time. Eventually, just ringing the bell makes the dog drool. If when you do your hip mobility work, you know there's an immediate benefit and you're going to feel good, eventually you associate uncomfortable hip mobility work or just working on your hips with pleasure, with a, a sense of well-being, a sense of, of freedom, a sense of not being in pain. So... That's where a lot of people I look get forward to. to doing it me too. because I know I'm like, this is going to help me so much. And I enjoy it's, a, it's almost like the same way you embrace the, the discomfort of cold because at every second you spend in that cold water is sharpening your mind is allowing you to tap into this, this stressor that stressor is allowing you to tap into getting this sense of control that you can't get. But you also other just, ways. you actually feel physiologically good though after too. Yeah. Like you'll actually, you, you'll be after you're all warmed up, you're like, oh, my, like, I just feel more energized. I feel fresher, yeah. feel sharper. Like so I just these survived are all... a stressor, a major <laughs> stressor and but, your body lets you know, it's like, okay, good. You're alive still. This is good. So I think that like the big thing with all of this is that the health, health is, it seems to be, it seems to me that health is is everything we just talked about in terms of like the things you do to improve your health or things that are healthy tend to not be necessarily fun <laughs> in the short term, but they the reinforcements are way more powerful in the long term because there's that there's that like visceral feeling of fe feeling energized, feeling healthy, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever it is. But those are all only realized if you go through the short term um, 
you know, challenges in order to develop these long-term habits. Yeah. So that's the, the, the sticking point or speed bump for a lot of people is that they can't get over those, those, the set of short-term punishments, if we call them that, um, that are required to take you to long-term sustainable health. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the, the issue. Well, people just, it seems like people just aren't adults sometimes. It's like just be an adult and make decisions based on, you know, I'll give you an example. Kids are always instant gratification, right? You tell yeah. a kid he's going to have a nail driven through his hand if he eats that cookie. He's still going to go for the cookie because he doesn't even think long-term consequence. But as an adult, you know, knowing that watching Game of Thrones for four hours and going to bed at 2 a.m. just to watch that, that, that show, it's going to make you feel crappy the entire next day. And mm-hmm. you might, the first time you, you figure out that you feel crappy, you might have to go through that the first time and do it. And then the next day you're like, wow, I feel so lethargic. I have no energy. You have to be able to connect. Okay, it's because I only slept X amount of hours because I was up till 2 a.m. watching Game of Thrones. Next time I'm going to be an adult and I'm going to recognize that sleeping is essential for a body that feels good and allows me to have a productive next day. So I'm not, you know, I don't want the Game of Thrones hangover. So I'm going to I'm going to choose to sleep because the long-term benefit of sleep is way bigger than the short-term benefit of watching a show that I want to watch. And you're going to feel good the next day and you're going to note exactly. that. And I think that's where the cognition comes into play. So when you talk about like cognitive behavioral therapy, basically the knock on just pure behaviorism is it's too animalistic. So you're right. We are if you look at our lower like our, our you know childlike selves we're almost dealing with that pure animalistic nature. But when you look at it like a fully developed human, we have the capacity to cognitively think about things way better than any other species. So we can actually analyze our behaviors. We can look at them. We're we're conscious of all these things at a high, high level. But I think a lot of times we're not using that capacity and we're running with these two lower brain centers. So we're dealing with the animal part of the brain and then that limbic part of the brain, which is more emotions. So we're just getting we're still giving too much resources to the emotional brain and the the reptilian brain. Mm-hmm. So, And that's a habit. That alone is a habit. If you're just running yeah. on those two primitive centers and not really taking much cognitive control over your decisions or your habits or what you do, that's also a learned behavior. It's easy. You're on autopilot. It's, it's magically easy. Um, but it takes work, right? And I think this, this work never used to be an option right? Like it never used to be optional to have to work to have control of your habits because if you did shitty habits, you died. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was the environment predicated you to make good decisions from a survival point of view. Now the survival part does, isn't really an issue anymore. You don't have to do certain behaviors to survive. You can survive. It's actually very easy to survive, but it's difficult to be healthy in an environment that is literally constantly trying to drive you to unhealthy behaviors for a short-term benefit. You're right. If we live back in the day, that behaviorism is actually more powerful because it's like yeah. animals that did so, so like behavior A got rewarded and then they did more of it. Animals that did behavior B that decreased their chances of survival they would either start to do it less or they'd be taken care of. So it's like you'd have to follow that. But the cognitive part of it is like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy talks about these cognitive distortions. And there are these errors in thinking that must be addressed in terms of like, and I think a lot of that comes into play. It's just like, you don't need to think about things. And a lot of people have these like little, little cognitive errors when they think about stuff like either uh, magnifying negatives, catastrophizing things, mm-hmm. not linking two things together. Yeah. So I think that it really is important to use these higher brain centers to think about things. And then we can go down the habit model once we know that, because the habits are all the more the subconscious part of it. Um, but just re- replacing maladaptive coping skills and you know cognitions, emotions, these behaviors with more adaptive ones is really what's going to take care of it in the end. And And so... Back to James Clear, he talks about, he goes through four laws and he goes through the four laws of creating a good habit and breaking a bad habit. So I just want to run through those because I think it is, it gives you kind of a framework to analyze. Okay, I have this behavior that I'm, a good behavior. So let's take hip, doing hip mobility work every day as a good behavior. So what he says is the four laws of creating a good habit. Number one is make it obvious, right? So make it obvious, give yourself a cue uh, you know, for example, for some people, the cue for hip mobility is there's a yoga mat placed directly 
front and center in the living room. Every time I look at that yoga mat, I know why I put it there. I put it there because I'm supposed to be doing hip mobility. That is my cue. That's my reminder. I made it very obvious. So make the desired behavior obvious. Yeah. Or the condition. You could even create that. That could be like the antecedent for the behavior. Yeah, exactly. You're engineering your environment so that there's a positive trigger to cue you to Mm -hmm. go into that behavior. Number two is make it attractive. And I think in the context of hip mobility, it should be more attractive to sit on the floor on that yoga mat than it is to sit on the couch. And that might mean putting the couch way at the back of the room, right? So make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy. If you have to go out of your way to do a good behavior, you're automatically making it harder to be consistent in doing that behavior. So make it easy and then make it satisfying. So understanding how much you're supposed to push yourself when you're doing hip mobility so that afterwards you feel good instead of bad, that's part of creating this good habit. So you make it obvious, you make it attractive, you make it easy and you make it satisfying. Mm-hmm. And you can take that to food as well, right? Like only buy good natural food that we're designed to eat, right? Make it obvious, make it attractive, Um you know, look back as to last time you ate really good natural food and how energized you felt. Uh, Make it easy. Have it available. Don't have shitty food available. Have really good, high-quality, high-nutrient-dense food available. And then make it satisfying. Make it taste good. This is one of the things that people are like, oh, well, when I eat healthy, it doesn't taste as good. It's like, yeah, you don't know how to cook. You don't know how to prepare food because it can taste really good. That's the thing is like... The food, it can be very, very rewarding. Healthy food can be rewarding yes. just as much. On so many levels. Mouth pleasure too. You get it to help. Food can taste like Liv makes food that I eat and I'm like, there's no friggin' way this is good for my body. It tastes so good. Like I, people disassociate mouth pleasure of something tasting good with it being healthy, but it, it might involve a bit more work. But that's an easy way to make healthy eating doable and make it a habit is make it taste good. That's like almost a hack right there. Yeah. So, and then on the converse side, so breaking a bad habit, and it's almost like the, the laws are basically just the direct <laughs> inverse. Number one, make it invisible. Okay. So if, if eating those cookies on the counter is the bad habit, make it invisible. That's a pretty simple one. Put it in the cupboard or just don't buy it in the first place. Make it unattractive, right? So with that one in the context of food, uh, or let's, let's even take that in the context of hip mobility, make it invisible. So the couch is out of the way. It's not front and center in front of the TV. So it's not as visible, make it unattractive. If it's really far away from the TV, you're not going to see the TV as well. So it's immediately harder to do that than it is to sit on the floor, make it difficult. Um, same thing. If the couch is far away, you literally have to move the couch closer in order to use it and then make it unsatisfying, right? Remind yourself in your brain, how shitty you feel after, afterwards sitting on a couch for four hours when you get up you're stiff so just thinking of that and and allowing your brain to go back and and almost like retrieve that thought of when i sit it feels good while i'm sitting but then after i feel terrible you're making it unattractive by triggering that thought process so it you know i think and, and the other thing too is like he talks about goals and he talks about how goals are are not you know Everyone can make goals. That's fine. Like you can go into a, a, I don't know, a golf tournament and say, my goal is to win. Here's the thing. The people that win the golf tournament and the people that lose the golf tournament both have the same goals, right? So he talks about focusing not so much on your goals, but focusing on the systems, which are the processes that you use to get to your goals. That is what people need to fixate on. Don't which fixate the on habits. the goal. Fixate on the systems. Exactly. And that, and the systems are, you know, whether that's organizing your environment so that well, good habits happen or just understanding your habits. That's the system. That's well, what are systems? Think of. Systems are just programs. And what are what the programs we're talking about are these program behaviors, which are habits. So so that the, really the systems are the habits, the habits. The set of habits is the system. Mm-hmm. So if you if you target the the set of habits, that's going to mold who you are, mm-hmm. and that's just going to run on autopilot. Because a system is a system because it you do no longer have, the system takes care of itself. Yeah. You don't have to continuously put input into the system. Um, the system is just running, mm-hmm. and that's why you develop it. Or else you have to consciously think about everything. So so yeah, I think that that's key is that like relating it to habits two systems and if you set up a good system in terms of your habits and that will take care of your health and you won't even have to think about it as much anymore because the system's taking care of it underneath the surface again exactly and he even talks about how self-control is um self-control and motivation are very short-term strategies right embedding good systems is a long-term strategy right like let's let's talk about goal and system in the context of uh, getting stronger. So you have a goal of wanting to bench press 200 pounds. Right now, you can only bench press 100. So 
that's fine to have that goal to person a person b they both have the same goal person b says okay my goal is to bench press 200 pounds in a month my system is going to be i'm going to bench press three times a week and i'm going to slowly increase my weight by x percentage so that by the end i can bench press 200 pounds person a just says yeah i'm, I'm just going to do what i can to get to that goal person B is going to have a much higher likelihood of reaching that goal because they have a system in place that takes away the need for motivation, the need for self-control to go to the gym, right? Maybe person B does push-ups at home every day and has a mat on the floor when they walk in that they look at and that reminds them, I got to do my push-ups today, right? Like create a fail-safe system that essentially you can you can eliminate the possibility of failure if you have good systems in place. Mm-hmm. You know, a good system to eat healthy is I'm going to make sure that Either I'm going to do groceries with someone that's going to hold me accountable for what I buy so that only good natural food is in the house. That's a system because you don't have the option to eat shitty if there's only good food available, right? So embed these systems and and I think, um, you know, a system for the average person to improve their hip mobility is make doing hip mobility every single day at home extremely convenient, extremely obvious. You know, take away the chairs, hide them, put them in the cupboard, make it hard for yourself to sit. Those are systems, basic systems to facilitate that behavior. Systems are harder to set up, but they're easier to maintain. So the, the effort that you must put in to develop the system is basically rewarding on the, in the long term again. So because the system is, because again, it's, it's cognitively very easy to maintain a system in place once it's in place. The system runs itself, but I think it's a lot of times people don't do the work to develop the systems and then they're, they're, they're just running on these, these pre, well, again, they're running on their own systems, right? Mm -hmm. So you are running on systems. You're just not running on the right systems. Exactly. So, so that's where help can come into play. Like we're, we're basically systems engineers for behavior. You should upgrade the system and update the system and change the system to to be something that brings you closer to the goals that you're trying to attain so if the goal is to become healthier you need a system that supports that and you just kind of layer down and create this system via the habits and all the things we've talked about um because the current system running is clearly not working if you're coming to see me and you want to if you if you if you have a goal that's different than your goal right now well the the key element there is something needs to give something needs to change and I think it's the systems that we're trying to, to target in all of this because that's what's going to make the most sustainable, long-lasting change. Yeah, and that's and I think if you take it back to rehab, you know, people will go in <clears throat> this whole thing of short-term pleasure at the at the expense of long-term um, kind of with a long-term expense. If you go into a physio clinic and you have knee pain and all they do is touch your knee in a way that makes it feel good in in the, for the next hour. Um, versus you go into a clinic and, and they spend that hour, instead of just trying to make you feel good, they're like, let's analyze the behaviors that are causing this. Okay, your knee hurts. We know that. And and we'll get rid of it. This is something we see very commonly. But let's analyze the behaviors you're doing every day so that we can not only get rid of your knee pain now, but we can stop you from ever getting knee pain again. Um, and I think that's an important distinction because when you first go in, people, you know, depending on on their mindset of what they're expecting to get out of physical therapy, they might come out and be like, Oh God, I have all this work to do every day. This sucks. You know, I just want my knee to feel better versus, Oh, my knee feels a little bit better. Now I got to go back in two days and get that done again. Like think long-term when it comes to the body, always think long-term. And if you're thinking long-term, it all has to do with identifying good behaviors and bad behaviors, right? What behavior is directly contributing to my knee pain? What behaviors do I need to start to work on, ingraining in order to get rid of my knee pain as a byproduct of just improving my movement because that's really what people need to do and they need to be ready for it too so that that's where that small actionable steps comes into play because you need to figure out like how much is this person willing to change right yeah, now that's the art part of it so so you it's read like people if you say like hey this person might need all the things you're talking about but if they're nowhere near that or if they're like to the brim and in, in uh lifestyle uh stressors and all this other stuff they're they might not be willing to listen to you and you might lose them along the way mm-hmm. it's like that's just too much for me man i know you're trying to help me but you know you're trying you're asking me too much so you need to figure out like what is the minimum dose that this person's going to be in for the ride on Mm -hmm. and then you can like say that once you have the foot in the door then you can start to build on on top of these systems and you can improve the systems over time but you need to figure out like you say it might be something as small as like can you 
can you do uh, you know five minutes a day for me? Can you do two minutes a day for me? Mm-hmm. Right. And this is where we you need to meet in the middle and and f- figure out like what can we actually do here. And I think having the conversation of like what's manageable for you right now, yeah. based on your life. Because if you don't have that conversation, again, it comes back to like they don't want to be thrown, uh, they don't want to be given an hour's worth of stuff a day if mm-hmm. they can only feasibly do five minutes of it. Yeah. They're gonna run away. So and it's less about the minimum effective dose, and it's almost more about the minimum sustainable dose. Mm-hmm. Like what is the what is the smallest amount that is completely sustainable for this person to feel empowered that they can do every day that's where you start what you actually put in there if does it really it's them building the habit the consistency of doing something for their benefit in terms of their body every day that's where the real value is they so still need to see the benefit yeah because that's what why it. you're giving it to them mm-hmm. but but at the end of the day it's just getting them to understand if all you do is get someone to make the connection between my knees hurt because i sit all day You've planted the seed to give them the tool to try and, you know, then you can coach them to change that behavior, but they have to acknowledge that connection first. Because if all you're doing is giving them random hip mobility shit and they don't even know why they're doing it, it's back to that thing. For people to be consistent, they got to know why. When they know why, at least you're giving them mm-hmm. the opportunity to, to understand this whole thing. Instead of just being told what to do, they're like, I get why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because. And, I'm, and by doing this, I'm going to get this result long term, which might not be i'm not going to feel amazing next week in fact i'm probably going to feel not so good while i'm doing the mobility stuff but i know it's not damaging me i know it's for my benefit and once they start to feel better a month later or a week later or even like a couple days later they're gonna be like oh okay i gotta i'm feeling better and the only thing i changed was doing a some hip joint hygiene every day connect those two that's the positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. but they have to be open-minded to even starting right people don't even start it's like people don't even know how good they can feel when they eat real food because they've just never started and it's too convenient to buy the shitty food and it's it's just too fun right like it's well that's one of those cognitive distortions is like in order to change your current situation something a behavior needs to change Mm -hmm. and that might see it's so it is very very simple but i think a lot of people are just missing that very simple step is like the way you're doing things right now, it needs to change. Yeah. we. That's it. Like if you keep running the same things, you're expecting me to, to just like do, you can't expect me to implement something for you and then you keep living in the same conditions that produce this thing in the yeah, first place. I know. So that's, I think the, the it comes back to that, like it's almost cognitive behavioral therapy that you're dealing with mm-hmm. in a sense is like, let's bring this all to light because it's not going to work if, if, if you're thinking I'm just going to do my thing and then I'm going to go live my life again, like just like I'm doing it because yeah. it's not going to work. Exactly. And so getting them to buy in and identify those those small things that they can start changing right away to chip away. You're not going to rebuild complete functional hip mobility in a week after spending four decades limiting it and stiffening your hips up, but you can make changes really quick. And I think one thing I've started to kind of discuss with people is every single day you wake up, your body changes. Like your body changes every single day, small changes, but cells turn over, your mobility can change based on the the input you give your body and if you know that then every single day that you spend a lot of time sitting in the chair your body's going to change but it's going to change for the worse it's going to change to get stiffer mm-hmm. but if every single day if the first week of implementing these positive changes all you do is sit for one hour less and you do five minutes of hip mobility work after one week you will have a different body you will have a body that is more mobile because you've taken away the negative that's creating these these problems and you're adding in a positive and it really mm-hmm. is way more about taking away the negatives than it, it's way more about getting rid of the things that cause you your body to become problematic than it is about adding a bunch of extra shit for you to do at the end of the day you know it's like you can either keep rubbing the sore spot on your foot from where the rock is 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 kind of irritating it or you can just take the rock out of your shoe and it's probably going to feel better automatically mm-hmm. and i think the low-hanging fruit aren't really things we just complicate things. It's so, it really, we always talk about this and I think we don't want it to be an oversimplification, but health is actually very simple. It's just very hard because so many of the habits we take for granted that we don't even know we're doing it's a, are what caused the problem. It's simple and very, very complex at the same time because the, the actual act of being healthy is simple, but we're dealing with the, this, uh, this software in the terms of like our, our, our it's all, it's our, it's our brain that we're having to deal with. So it's a very, like no 
it, it takes a lifetime to try to master your own mind. Like the, the craziest thing you can do and the hardest thing is actually master your own mind. It's the mind that gets you healthy. So in order, in order, so basically making the connection there, um, your health is dependent on your control of your, over your own like brain and nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, and if, so that, that's where it is. It's, it's simple on paper, but then to actually put it through, you need to deal with all these, like all the psychological principles that we've been talking about today. You need to actually work with all of that and get a hold of this crazy software that we're dealing with in the brain because that's what's going to make you healthy so that's it's it's at the same time it's hard to say it's it's that complex and easy at the same time or i would say it's complex and simple at the same time well that's that's going to confuse people because that's an oxymoron like in the sense of simple i mean if you sleep eight hours exactly eat food we're designed to eat if you don't if you spend the bulk of your day moving your body will be significantly better so that's the simple part on paper but But then it's like things is complex exactly so being healthy is not complex but but doing the healthy behaviors in a society that is literally it's like that's all it is but that's the whole the so being healthy on paper is very easy but but that is almost irrelevant because because we can almost be like we know how to be healthy. Here's like, I can give you like one page outline on like, here's what you need to do to be healthy. But the the biggest thing is how do we get there? Now mm-hmm. that's, that's really the, where the work and complexity comes in because mm-hmm. you're dealing with programs that are deep, deep, deep in your subconscious. You're dealing with a bunch of shit, even from your childhood that's affecting your ability to get to that one spreadsheet of paper that, that mm-hmm. would be healthy. So, so that's what I mean by it's, it's, it's a conundrum because it's, yeah, we can look at what needs to be in place to be healthy, but now what's what needs to be done in terms of the work? That's the complex and hard part. So you need to figure it out. It's an overtime thing. It's almost a lifetime project that you have to work on to, to get these things in place, develop these systems and, you know, get rid of the old systems, put in new systems and develop mm-hmm. all these things. And it doesn't have to be all done at once, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can, you know, working with a behavior change coach, aka a physical therapist or a physician or a chiropractor or some sort of health professional, they are your behavior change coach. They help you identify, okay, there's 10 different things that we're doing, 10 different behaviors that you do on a regular basis that are all contributing to give you problems. And problems could be like literally physical pain. It could be um, like acne or a mental fog, whatever it is. Something is going wrong in your body. These are 10 possible behaviors that are contributing to it. Let's talk about number one, prioritize what the most important behavior is to change the one that's doing the most damage and then let's talk about the ones that are easiest and most manageable to change in your life that you're willing to take the step towards changing and you take that list and you cross-reference okay this is the biggest one that's probably this is one of the biggest ones that's giving you problems it's also the second biggest one that you feel comfortable changing or you feel you have the power to change let's start with that maybe that's sleep Maybe that's recognizing some of the stressors that you don't even know are causing you stress that you can modify in some way, right? And I think people having the ability, people feeling like they have control over what's happening in their life is a massive kind of factor, right? If all you're doing is constantly on the treadmill of stress and you're just literally trying to not fall off the treadmill, it's hard to actually take an external view and be like, wow, I'm just running on this treadmill and all I have to do is press stop and and, and be able to get a second or be able to, to take a break from that treadmill. And sometimes they need help recognizing, like, you need to prioritize sleep. You need to sleep eight hours. It becomes easy again. So it goes from, like, easy on paper. And then if you look at a broad view, very complex. But then you can simplify it again by saying, let's take those small steps. Yeah. So it's like... Small. And because it, really it's small. overwhelming if not. So yeah. like I said, you're dealing with a ton of shit that's, been, that's created who you are today. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, now we just take it that's the long-term process you gotta you gotta just embrace the long-term part of it um and then we start to say oh it's now easy again because all i need to do is take do these two things and that helps this area a little mm-hmm. bit then i start to do this thing and it helps that area okay cool so now it's easy simplified yeah. it again and you have to pare it down like the sleep one okay maybe maybe it's not okay get eight hours of sleep every night the person's like well i just can't i can't even fall asleep perfect so let's talk about do you do you take stimulus do you drink coffee yes I have a coffee, I have three coffees a day and I have my last ones at around four or five. Perfect. So the first thing we're going to do, and I think, you know, you can find this manageable is let's, let's eliminate that last coffee for the first few days. You're going to feel foggy, right? You're used to taking that caffeine bump to boost your energy level back up, but caffeine has a half-life of seven hours and that could probably be affecting your ability to fall asleep at night. So let's make it so that you have a caffeine deadline, a caffeine, um, yeah, a caffeine deadline of like 1 p.m. Don't have coffee after 1 p.m. Let's see what that does. 
They start with that. That is manageable. All mm. you have to do is not drink that cup of coffee at 4 p.m. That's one behavior. And maybe it takes a reminder. Maybe you have to put a post-it note on your computer saying, don't have the 4 p.m. coffee. Because you're probably just going to autopilot, go to the coffee machine at that point, right? Depend on, and, and maybe you don't succeed at that for the first three days because you're like, you hold off and then you're like, oh my God, I feel terrible. I have a headache. I feel so lethargic. I need that coffee. So then they, then you grab the coffee. And having conversations with people to coach them so that they're not alone. Like people have to feel like they're, um, they have support, right? Changing a behavior is hard. Like when we went into um, those, those cold, cold tubs at Nordique at the spa, it was way more when you're in a group and you know you have the support of people around you and you know you're doing it as a group and someone has your back or someone's trying to keep you, you know, on track. It's way easier to make that hard behavior change that you might have just take it's you're on autopilot so it's hard to make that change even though it's not a complex change it's hard because you've always done it that way when you know someone has your support and is keeping you honest you know when you ask that person next time they come in to see you how'd your sleep going are you are you able to hold off on that 4 p.m coffee well for the first few days i couldn't but then i did it and i felt shitty but i kept doing it now now i actually get to sleep easier and it's mm-hmm. like okay perfect what's the next thing we can modify okay you look at screens for the hour before you go to bed let's switch that to a book and let's see how that modifies it right and like People love to overcomplexify things. It's like, okay, you should be sleeping eight hours. Oh, well, I don't know. How do you do that? Like, I have so much stuff to do. Well, it's pretty simple. What time do you wake up at? Subtract eight hours. Go to bed then. Yeah. (laughs) Start there. And maybe you have to work on some breath to kind of calm your mind or whatever it is. Uh, I think it's just kind of constantly not... People just need the coaching. I think that's the biggest part, right? It's like, think of how hard it is to change a shitty behavior yourself and you're way more self-aware of your behaviors than the average person i find it hard i have to purposely mm-hmm. not walk through the bakery aisle sometimes because i know if i'm tired or run down i'm gonna buy the cookies so yeah. but recognizing that and being like okay i'm gonna go this way and not even expose not even expose myself to the trigger or the antecedent because that makes it difficult you're just right? trying to basically train that train your animal differently yeah. Because you're and hack around you take are take away trainer. my self motivation. Take away my self um self control as a as a variable that could potentially be let down sometimes and just don't even expose myself to the trigger. It's so. almost like if you look at it from an external if, if you look at a, a dog being trained by a trainer, the trainer works with the dog over time and establishes behaviors that are mm-hmm. desirable. Mm-hmm. But if humans we can think of ourselves as both the trainer and, and the dog mm-hmm. so true you're so both. we're both so we just need to if you're if you're running around if your animal is running around like a like a dog that's untrained doing shit that you don't want it to do getting in trouble all of this well you got to look at training it right mm-hmm. so so then it just comes back to your, you you being able to train yourself slowly over time because the dog is not going to be trained in one day to sit down, uh, you know, jump around when like it, it, you, it takes time. It takes yeah. it takes these it takes sessions. Work. It takes work. And then eventually the end result of that is a dog that has a system in place where you have words that you call and you have a whole system for you because you've done the work on the front end uh, and that creates the behaviors that you want on the back end. And the dog is so, your mind. The dog, exactly. is, let's be real. The dog is your mind, and the dog's, your higher yeah, the dog's that animal mind. are the trainer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, the dog goes crazy, the animal goes crazy. Your mind loses the sense of control, and you have these lapses, and that's fine. And I, like the lapses are good. Eating shitty food once in a while is good because it reminds me of how crappy I feel afterwards. And it's almost like okay, let the animal loose for a bit, let it go crazy and run around. It's like when you met, let Memphis out, um, like. Uh, my dog in the backyard he goes crazy if he hasn't been outside in a while and he just blasts the energy out but then he's good then he's then he's kind of gotten that out of his system and sometimes if you need to go crush a burger because that's on your mind then do it but you then, need to appease the it to the animal too yeah because you got to realize you're still an animal just make sure make sure you know make sure the trainer always recognizes that they're in control maybe they let the animal go wild a little bit as long as necessary it, as long as it's safe because yeah because they need that sometimes um but, you know, maybe instead of him going crazy when you first let him out, maybe you go for a run with him so that it's a controlled way. Like maybe if you're if you're getting stir crazy or losing focus, maybe you go out for a run or maybe you do some sprints like you're, you're essentially putting in a controlled struggle so that you feel that need. Right. That's waiting to be unleashed. But you do it in a way that's controlled and in a way that's going to benefit you instead of uh, it being something that's negative. I think that Joe Rogan is, is a big proponent of 
of that um, is is working with that animal part and just taking that off the table very very early mm-hmm. because then he he basically he thinks that um, if you do that then then it's much easier to deal with um, everything else so so just like going hard basically just going hard in the gym um doing hard shit like putting your your body through shit yeah. makes everything else um easier on the back end but i think it's just dealing with that that lower primitive self that that is always wanting to do crazy crazy stuff and like it needs these urges met in some way you mm-hmm. just need to figure out what urges how can i meet these urges in something that's going to help me as opposed to harm me so so you going for sprints is much better than you going and getting hammered at a bar yeah. um, or yeah. whatever it might be exactly. so cool. yeah so i think the theme of this whole podcast is number one the process of behavior change starts with awareness right recognizing the behaviors that are causing the negatives that you're trying to get rid of um, and being aware of the habits so that you can actually change them right because without being aware of a habit you cannot change it it's not even on your radar or something that exists so recognize the habits and sometimes you need help recognizing those habits or making the connection of this is the bad this is the negative i'm trying to get rid of this is the habit i'm doing that i don't even know i'm doing that's playing into that negative habit right and you know the big ones for us we talk about uh footwear is a big one people don't even know that the footwear they wear is causing them to develop foot problems or or issues upstream uh sitting is a big one this this habit of sitting where society literally literally revolves around chairs and you have to go out of your way to break the habit of constantly sitting in a chair by eliminate by making sitting difficult by making sitting inconvenient, by recognizing that the pain I'm experiencing is because of spending too much time in a static position sitting in a chair, right? So delve deep into these things, start making small changes. When the changes that you're doing, even at a small level, start to give you a reward, you feel better, you feel less stiff, your training goes better, your runs are going more smoothly, you're not having pain. That's all you need to reinforce those behaviors, but you need to make those connections and you need to understand that short-term gain and pleasure oftentimes comes with a back-end consequence and short-term suffering or short-term, I guess, work, right? Which work is is like something that most people... Hard but work might, is not something that you are ingrained to want to do. You might consider it suffering, yeah. Yeah, and, and the short-term suffering sometimes can give you a long-term benefit. And that's where we always got to think long-term and trying to identify the short-term things that give long-term results in both negative and positive. Identifying those are a massive part, whether you're a health professional working with people um, or whether you're just someone that needs to start to building good habits. You know, the, these are powerful things and it starts with just being aware. So anyway, I hope you guys benefit uh, from that from that podcast um and it had hopefully it had some structure to it so um yeah we'll catch you next time